I got an email a couple of weeks back from a former guest of ours asking if I knew about a lecture available on YouTube. It concerned the tale of a phone call that Lee Harvey Oswald tried to make while in police custody. Our erstwhile guest, Roger Peterson, said he was fascinated by the story, which he'd previously been completely unaware of. I replied, yes. I was lucky enough to have attended a lecture by Dr. Grover Proctor on what is known as the Raleigh Call some years back. I agreed. It was a truly remarkable, yet little-known episode. We decided to reach out to Dr. Proctor about talking to us about it, and happily, he's agreed. Our guest is a historian and former university dean. He has founded two colleges in the People's Republic of China, which has earned him the honor of being named Friend of Higher Education in China by the government. Dr. Proctor is an expert in statistical analysis and has taught all levels of same to both undergraduates and grad students in the U.S. and Europe. He is also an expert on the JFK assassination. He first took a dive into this episode of Oswald's phone call after reading about it in Anthony Summers' 1980 book, Conspiracy. Summers had made mention of the fact that the accused assassin had asked the switchboard operators from Dallas to put a phone call through to a John Hurt in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is something that never showed up in the Warren Report, despite its provocative nature. What actually happened regarding that call and its aftermath are jaw-dropping tales, and numerous mysteries remain firmly attached to the sequence of events. We're fortunate to be able to explore these matters with a man who is the go-to guy on the subject, to which we say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Grover Proctor. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that, and I'm glad to know that the subject matter has caught people's attention. Well, you posted recently about your surprise at the sheer number of views that your talk has accrued on YouTube. Can you, can you share some of those numbers? Well, back at the end of February, it, it became clear that one of those lectures, the one that I gave in Allen, Texas, was inching up toward 6 million views after having been online only seven years. And I thought that was totally incomprehensible because it is, a very, very narrow portion of the larger concept and, and story of the assassination. It really doesn't have anything to do with who killed Kennedy. It was a lecture given by me, of all people. Nobody knows me, and nobody is out there saying, oh, Grover Proctor's got another big lecture, let's go. But none of that is true. And so the, the gentleman in Allen, Texas, that booked me to do the lecture contacted me, and we were sitting there. So I've been tracking each day the number of hits that YouTube is recording. And since that time, in late February, we not only ticked up over 6 million and then 7 million, but with a few days after 7 million, 8 million views. And we sit now at about 8.5 million views. I still have no rational or logical explanation for it. I, I jokingly said one time, well, maybe the CIA has it on a loop. I don't know. <laughs> so that that is amazing. I would like to think that at least some percentage of those people are finding out about the story and are being uh, as captivated by it as I was back in 1980 when I first started researching it. Well, if I do say so, the way you lay out the, uh, the story in such a, a riveting way, I think, is contributing to its success. Well, thank you. I, I take that as a high compliment. Your talks on the subject break the story down into several parts, and, and of course, the first naturally being what happened that night when Oswald sought to telephone someone named John Hurt. It's not 
that simple a story that uh, what went down that night. But can you try and outline what uh, how how it did go down? This the story of two uh, switchboard operators in Dallas. And we only have the the bulk of the story of what happened that night. This is Saturday night, a little over 24 hours after the assassination itself. Oswald has been in police custody all that time. And during the course of the day on that Saturday, the 23rd of November, he lets it be known that he wants to make a couple of phone calls. And he does attempt to make one earlier in the day, which is not really involved with our story here. But later that evening, wanted to make another one. Switchboard operators uh, on that particular evening, two of them, as you indicated, Mrs. Swinney, who was the boss and in charge of the uh, of the process there, and one of the ladies that also worked with the switchboard, a lady by the name of Mrs. Alvina Alvita Trion, and Mrs. Trion's having captured a moment of this story and saving it as a souvenir is what literally brought the story back out after having not been known by anyone outside of Mrs. Treon's family for five to six years after the assassination. But what happened that night was uh, a call from the jail came up and appeared on the switchboard. Both ladies rushed to put their um, uh, lines into the, the switchboard in order to handle it. Um, both of them said, number please, at about the same time. But because Mrs. Swinney was uh, senior in the hierarchy there, Mrs. Treon let her handle it. And it was, in fact, Lee Oswald attempting to make that call. But because both had plugged into the switchboard, both ladies were able to hear everything that Lee Oswald said. And Mrs. Treon actually sat there and took notes about everything that he asked and said in terms of the name of the person he wanted to call, the city, which was Raleigh, North Carolina, the two telephone numbers that he had apparently memorized, and even the area code, uh, which was not, had not been used that long by the public uh, at that time and had been introduced only a, a short while prior to that, he knew the area code of, of Raleigh, North Carolina. Prior to the call coming through, two men in suits came into the switchboard area. Mrs. Swinney knew they were coming. She greeted them. She put them over into the equipment room so that they could monitor the call that Oswald wanted to make. So when the call came through and Oswald was put on hold, as we would call it today, so that she could place the call, what she did was contact the men in the equipment room next door, explained everything that Oswald had just said, and Mrs. Swinney, who at this point can't hear anything that's coming from the, from the two-suited gentlemen because her key is only into the, uh, into the jail cell line that's coming in, uh, but she watches her co-worker's face, and it gets more and more clouded. She starts shaking. She's very nervous. And even after it's clear that the two men in the other room had stopped talking and that that line wasn't being used anymore, the, Mrs. Swinney sat there very um, upset until finally she opened the key back up to Oswald and said, I'm sorry, sir, that call did not go through. Cut him off, and that was it. And Mrs. Treon, who sat there and witnessed that and had no reason to know that that's what 
her co-worker was going to say, said she sat there dumbfounded because obviously Mrs. Swinney had not attempted to make the call, and the only inference that seemed to make any sense was that whatever the two gentlemen in the next room had said to Mrs. Swinney had to do with don't even attempt to place the call, that's okay. We now know what we want to know, or whatever they might have said. And so Mrs. Treon had written down all of this information on a little slip that they have there in the switchboard office. Oh, they, do, they did then, because they had to keep track of outgoing long-distance calls for accounting purposes. And so she had written the phone numbers and the name and all of this information, and she kept that writing that she had done as a souvenir of having been there in Dallas, in the jail, having listened to Lee Oswald, the accused assassin of the president, uh, uh, on the uh, switchboard line, and kept it until 1968, where it magically and quite uh, unbelievably resurfaced in a conversation she was having with a friend over dinner. We can get into that as we want, but that's that's what happened. And so there was the name, John Hurt, Raleigh, North Carolina, two different phone numbers, and that's all the ladies knew. That's all anyone knew uh, that was involved with that situation until much, much later. Well, a lot of questions are raised by the, the events that you've you've just described, and we probably should hit those momentarily, but, but almost of equal mystery and intrigue is, is this part two of this saga where Mrs. Treon does pass this information, which is which nobody really knows about, and 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 generates a lot of attention. That itself is is, is a curiosity. Can you can you unspool how that happened? Well, we don't know too much about Mrs. Treon. She died in 1999, and I never actually got hold of her to interview her. But um, those that did uh, described her as a person who was not seeking attention, not trying to be. Oh, look what I have! I have a piece of history. She was literally having dinner with a family friend um, uh, one night and happened to mention that she was there in the Dallas jail on that time. And, oh, by the way, I heard Lee Oswald try to make a phone call, and I even have a phone slip about that. And the gentleman who worked in the um, in law enforcement at that time said, oh, I'd like to see it. They talked about it. He said, I'll bet the sheriff would like to see this, because by this time Mrs. Treon had moved her family to uh, Green County, Missouri. He said, I bet the sheriff would like to know about that. So he calls the sheriff the next day. The sheriff says, I think this is out of my pay grade. <laughs> I think that maybe this is the FBI's uh, uh, trip here. So he contacts the field office in Springfield, Missouri, for the FBI. They come and interview Mrs. Uh, Treon. So that's how the government actually found out about this. It was not known by anyone that was willing to talk about it at the time the Warren Commission was collecting its data. And it had it not been for that brief conversation and the gentleman's taking it up the line to law enforcement, in this case federal law enforcement, probably would have sat in Mrs. Treon's hope chest or wherever she had it for the rest of her life and no one but she and her family would have known about it. That is the, going to be the jumping-off point that will take it ultimately to the House Assassinations Committee and their uh, long research into it. Uh, and that's at the end of that that I jump into the story and start reporting it to, to the public because the House Assassinations Committee did not report it to the public. 
That itself is a curiosity. But between the time of, of this going up the chain to the sheriff and, and the FBI, and, uh, well, it, the, the data got out. So somewhere along the way, an affidavit is produced uh, with, with the information, with, as, as you note in your lectures, some inaccuracies. But a lot of people got interested right away. Phone calls started being made. Prominent attorneys like Bud Fensterwald, who was expected later to become the head of the, the HSCA but, but did not, um, was interested in this. Uh, lawyers were asking questions. Journalists were asking questions. I mean, the word got out once that this went up the chain. Right, it did. And, in fact, to journalists. There was one journalist in particular who, as, as little as a week after the sheriff in Greene County was called, and the FBI was contacted. And as little as a week after that, says one um, person that was involved with the uh, situation at that time, um, a phone call comes in to, uh, to ask information about the telephone slip that Mrs. Treon had written and other information. And the person, the national journalist who was obviously had been filled in by somebody about a lot of information that had not been known uh, until at least uh, at most a week ago. He has all of this information. He's trying to flesh it out for a story. His name was Ian Calder. He He was writing at that time for and would one day retire as CEO of, yes, the National Enquirer. They are building up this case. He keeps all of this information in his in his files, and when the House Assassinations Committee is set up and is starting to move forward in their investigations, they've made it known that they want to take all of the individual stories that have come up, investigate them all, find the truth or falsity of them all, and tell exactly what happened. And so this was one of those that they were very happy to get hold of. A letter is written by an attorney um, who knows about the information, who had worked with Bernard Fensterwall, is written to Ian Calder and says, would you turn over your file of the uh, Treon uh, situation to the House Assassinations Committee? Now, I wouldn't ask you to turn this over to another reporter, because this is your story, and I understand that. But this is the government, and they really want to. And so apparently it was. And that's how it finally got to Congress to be investigated. They ended up finding that everything that they were able to verify or get any kind of information about in terms of what Mrs. Treon said, reported, and what her actions were, led them to believe that Mrs. Treon was telling the exact truth about what happened in the switchboard that night, that it was a call that was attempting to be outgoing from Oswald, not some crank caller coming, calling in to the Dallas jail trying to talk to Oswald or whatever, as some people had said, well, no, that's just what it was. It wasn't Oswald trying to do this. But they came to the conclusion, very definite, all the way up to G. Robert Blakey, who was the chief counsel for the House Assassinations Committee on the JFK side, who later would say, it's incontrovertible. We know it's true. We know that the call was attempted to be outgoing, and it's troubling, and it's undocumented in in, in the history of this uh, particular story of the assassination, and in addition to being disturbing, it's something that we don't know what the final answer is or what its meaning for this is. And so it was verified. 
Well, if Oswald was just the lone nut that he's made out to have been, uh, it, it, this whole story of two men in suits not putting the call through simply doesn't make sense. If it was a matter of, uh, of police officials wanting to know more about the accused assassin, of course they would want to put the call through and listen to who he was talking to and what he was saying. So I think this circles back to uh, something that uh, central to your talk. You talk about the... Uh, the fingerprints of intelligence being all over Lee Oswald and, of course, his defection to the USSR and his actions in New Orleans that got Jim Garrison interested in him. They're, very, they're highly suspicious of it being an operative of some sort, whether witting or perhaps manipulated. And, uh, you know, I think it's, I would say at this point, this uh, calling someone, and we haven't gotten to this yet, with an intelligence background in Raleigh, it fits the pattern. So tell us a little bit about, about this man that he was trying to reach. Well... And you're exactly right. I think I've, I've been asked many times in my lectures and so forth, who do you think Oswald was? Who was he working with? Was he, was he a spy? That sort of thing. And the answer that I've come up with that I can live with, I can't prove either way, I think it's one of two things. Either, if you look at what he did in the months and year leading up to the assassination and who he associated with, he was either working for American intelligence or and I actually think this latter one is more likely, or someone was leading him along and making him believe that he was. And he is described by people who knew him very closely as a very patriotic young man. He had been a Marine. He was proud of being a Marine. And so he could have been an easy target for someone wanting to manipulate. That's all I can say, because I don't know what the truth is. But that seems to be our our choice. So if someone were trying to manipulate him, one of the things they might say is, well, you being a, a spy now, um, if you ever get caught, if you ever get into trouble, uh, anybody tries to give you any problems, don't call us. You just don't do that because you want to give a direct line back to us. We're going to give you a name of a person that if you get into trouble, call this person. He will then get in touch with us, and this cutout person, as it's called in Spycraft, will be the one that can honestly say, no, I, I never knew Lee Oswald, and um, so uh, it will not go directly back to us, and, and that link will not be made. And so it appears, and this is the only logical conclusion I can come to, I can't swear that it's the way it happened, but it certainly fits all the facts as we know them, it appears that someone along the way said to Oswald, if you do get caught, call a man named John Hurt in Raleigh, North Carolina. And it appears that they didn't even give him phone numbers for this John Hurt or phone number for this John Hurt. And the reason I say that is, remember, when we were talking about the phone slip that Mrs. Treon wrote out, she would put down two telephone numbers. And as it turns out, those were the two telephone numbers that in 1963 belonged to men called John Hurt. And that's the way they were listed in the Raleigh Telephone Directory at that time. So if Oswald, thinking, okay, well, if I ever need this John Hurt, on I need to know a phone number for him. If he had called what they called information back then, 411, or what we call directory assistance now, if he had called that and said, I want a phone number for John Hurt in Raleigh, North Carolina, he almost certainly would have been told, well, there are two, which one do you want? And he apparently would have said, I'll take both. He got both. He memorized them. 
And that's why he knew two numbers to tell the switchboard operator. Now, the person that was the number two on the list was very, very quickly eliminated once the House Assassinations Committee started looking into it. He was very, very young at the time. He was a high school dropout. He worked in what they call the tire recapping business and um, just seemed to have no connection at all uh, or to be a likely candidate. And that was okay because the first telephone number that was there was for a John David Hurt, who in World War II had been in U.S. Army counterintelligence during World War II. Unfortunately, his life kind of turned around after the war. He, he developed very strong and debilitating, almost crippling uh, physical diseases. He was diagnosed with mental problems, psychological problems. He ended up being an alcoholic as well. He was very, very strong in, in the precinct level of the Democratic Party in Raleigh at that time, and he was known for calling up the governor's office and swearing at the governor's office people because the governor hadn't come down to their precinct to meet with them and that sort of thing. He had that record with the State Bureau of Investigation at the time. So if you were trying to find somebody that was way off the radar screen of anybody that anybody would have any sort of respect or pay attention to. Unfortunately, this gentleman, John David Hurt, would have fit the bill perfectly. And they would have known about him, perhaps, because of his former work in the Army or however. So he would have been a good throwaway person, such that if Oswald ever did call him, A, no one would ever find out, and B, even if they did, no one believed would believe that he was calling in for some reason or whatever. Again, we can't prove any of that, but that is the definition of the timeline and the facts that seem to come together and and meet all the, the qualifications for truth that this story has, uh, has uncovered. At this point, we should introduce, I think, uh, a rather explosive speculation that uh, came out of a former CIA officer, Victor Marchetti. He wrote a book that was censored back uh, while I was in the late 60s or 70s. He left the agency. He was fed up with their behavior. He wrote a book about it. It was taken to court. They, they did censor what got published. He knew of what he spoke. And when, uh, when, when you got around to asking him about this Raleigh call, he certainly thought he knew what it was all about. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. Victor Marchetti was very uh, forthcoming with us. He was very direct. He said, uh, I told him about the story. He was not aware of it at the point, but he said, oh, I know exactly what was happening. John David Hurt was Oswald's cutout. They, they sent him uh, to, to John David Hurt in case he ever got in trouble. He would have gotten to the people who Oswald was working for, quote unquote, and they, their intent at, at that time would be, their responsibility would be to go to the authorities and say, oh, you don't have to worry about this man, he's okay. And that's what Oswald would have been expecting, and that's what he would have been promised. But Marchetti said no. He said, I think that, uh, I think if you look into Oswald's Marine past and how he, when he left the Marines, he, within a short period of time, defected to the Soviet Union, I think you're going to find that he was not the Marxist that everybody thought he was because he went to the Soviet Union, but that he was being run by a program for disaffected American soldiers to uh, defect to the Soviet Union for our intelligence um, people and agencies 
hoping that they would be picked up as agents in Russia, in the Soviet Union, and could play, therefore, double agents and send uh, back to the American people things that he would find out over there. He said, and in fact, I'm not surprised that this John David Hertz in North Carolina, because the training base for this program was at Nags Head, North Carolina. And people have come forward afterwards and said, yes, I remember seeing Oswald at the Nags Head training and so forth. So that, that again, builds up several layers of credibility to the story and makes it look like that either he had been officially recruited into the uh, intelligence work here or someone was trying to make him think it was. And uh, either way, he got caught up in something that was apparently too big for him. Well, the Marines, which Oswald was a member of, or, or the Navy, part of the Navy in the Office of Naval Intelligence, reportedly, per, per Marchetti, was trying to create um, a program for these defectors, and that, that certainly, that just absolutely fits Oswald to a T. And I'm really surprised to hear you mention that um, others now say they saw him at Nag's head. I was unaware of that. And I guess my next question was, do you have other evidence that's backing up this claim? So far, a former CIA pilot um, who has um, since retired, uh, is the only one. I won't give his name here. He's in the literature. You can find it. Right. He is the one that has said, yes, I remember seeing him there. And he, his research, or I should say that his information that he has given to researchers, has proved accurate enough in the past that we have a tendency to believe what he says. Well, this Raleigh call uh, does not speak to Oswald's culpability in the assassination, but uh, it certainly points to how his true, true identity is unknown or imperfectly known at the very best. Uh, can you speculate on the matter of his actual guilt in the assassination? Some people, myself included, uh, sincerely doubt that he was an assassin at all. I have, um, shall we say, migrated in my, in, my, in my studied opinions about that. I think from the very first, and I've been at this almost 50 years of research now, at the very first when I started it, I was in my 20s. It just seemed like to me a botched investigation. Clearly there had to be some other people. Oswald was working with other people. He probably was up there firing, but, you know, it, it was not his idea. He was a part of it. My thoughts have migrated closer and closer to what you just expressed about yours over the years because I've had the opportunity to become friends with, talk with, and and uh, share conversations, uh, both written and verbal, uh, with um, a person that claims to have known Oswald very, very well in New Orleans in the summer before the assassination in 63. And she paints a very different opinion of him than the Warren Commission's lone nut psychopath uh, Marxist, uh, nihilist kind of uh, personality. And that, plus the testimony of people who said that they claim to have seen Oswald standing in the, in the second floor commissary, calmly drinking a Coca-Cola moments after the assassination, and plus the paraffin test that proved that he had not fired a rifle that day, and other things that have come up, leads me to believe that it's entirely possible he was not the assassin, that he never fired a bullet that day. Can I prove that? No. Is it something that people whom I know and respect and who are very intelligent disagree with vehemently? Yes, absolutely. And so we just agree to disagree. 
we don't know. One day, perhaps we will find out. But um, I, I'm having less and less absolute feelings that he gazed through the Manlikar Karkano site and pulled the trigger that day. The Biden administration is currently being sued to gain compliance with the JFK Records Act, and that's a friend of ours, uh, this program, Bill Simpich, is involved in that. Um, I think you'd agree that the CIA and other intelligence agencies like the Office of Naval Intelligence, etc., that they're hiding some things. Uh, what would you like to see released above, all, above other things? I had a lot of questions like this from the media back when the data dump, the, the, the document dump during the Trump administration was, and then now uh, with uh, what small amount was released uh, here in the Biden administration. I had the news media contacting me all the time, especially during the first one when we were supposed to get hundreds of thousands of documents. And, oh, do you think we'll know the truth? Uh, what do you think it'll show? And all that. And I was I disappointed every single news person that ever came to me with that. I said, it's not going to matter. I, I don't care how many pieces of paper we end up seeing or, or uh, facsimiles or uh, any kind of document that uh, form that they come out of. You're not going to see anything that is going to be the smoking gun. Oh, well, really, we, it's sort of like they wanted to say, but we want it to. But, and you knew that that's what they were thinking because we want a big story. And I said, well, think about it this way. If Oswald was the lone assassin, then any documents that come out are just going to point to that and, you know, truth is truth. You can't have opinions about truth, right? But if you allow, even for the possibility that there was a conspiracy, even a conspiracy of two or three people clustered around Oswald or using Oswald as a passive, whatever you want to say, and have documents that would tend to indicate that, like somewhere someone along the line took a deposition of someone and said, yeah, I know, I saw the guy over in that other building firing the gun that day. If you had that document and it had been classified as part of all these things in the National Archives and you never wanted it to see the light of day, classifying it for 75 years is not going to do the trick. And I suggested to them that if there ever had been such a document, it would have been in the shredder or in the fire a long time before now. So I don't really know what the CIA specifically is hiding. Um, they say it's because they don't want to compromise ongoing investigations in the world. That's certainly, if that were true, I would agree with it 100 percent, but it's also a really good lie to hide behind if it is a lie. I don't know what's in there that they're just so adamant that it not come out, but it really doesn't matter because it's just not going to be there. That's my opinion. I could well be wrong about that, and I would be surprised and thrilled if all of a sudden some document did solve the whole question for us. Sure. Um, in your YouTube video, which we certainly recommend everybody check out uh, after they've, they've heard our talk here today, uh, you expressed an optimism that uh, the truth may be, may be out already. Someone may have already written it up and gotten it pretty, pretty essentially correct and, and really have figured out how the whole thing went down. And, and you were optimistic then. I would ask, are you, are you still optimistic that uh, maybe we know more than we even know? Well, I mean, it's, 
it's if that is in fact true if what i if the metaphor that i used is, is correct that somewhere out there somebody got 98% of it and put it into a book well but that's just one book sitting in a whole library of thousands perhaps even 10,000s of publications books articles whatever that sits out there uh first of all it's the needle in the haystack. How are you going to find it? And B, how would you ever vet it against all those other theories to know that, oh, this is the one right here, this book, this author published on this date is the one that got it 98% true. There's no way really that I can think of that you could pick it up and say, yes, I now know that this is it and, and we now know the truth. So logic says somebody probably did get very, very close, but I couldn't begin to tell you which person it was it wasn't me because I haven't written a book. But if um, if if I were challenged to spend the rest of my life reading every single book again uh, and picking out the one, I you know, pointless, fruitless, and and ultimately frustrating. Well, allow us to suggest, sir, that you do write a book. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. We've been speaking with Dr. Grover Proctor about the still mysterious episode of Lee Harvey Oswald's attempt to reach a former military intelligence agent in North Carolina while he was in police custody. There are many details we've omitted here to, due to time constraints, so we, we do recommend that you seek Dr. Proctor's YouTube presentation. And better yet, check out his website. Can you please give us the web address? Grover Proctor, and that's Proctor with an O-R at the end, dot U-S slash JFK, and that'll take you to a page that lists everything that's out there. What I have tried to do is pick every single piece of declassified documents that are out there that have even the remotest thing to do with the Raleigh call, transcribe it, put it out there in one place where everybody, every researcher can find and know that it's there and that it's complete. So that, that's the purpose of the site. Well, we thank you for speaking with us. 2023 represents the 60th year post the assassination. I'm sure a lot of people, researchers, are holding some, at least I hope, some are holding some nuggets that they're going to uh, to, to come up with uh, in the not-too-distant future. And, and uh, I hope that we might uh, talk again uh, if and when that happens. And I think it might. I would be very happy to come and speak again. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you again. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you again next week.